can we find another way? And the way I would like to find is one where we dig down to the processes that empower or that entrap. You've got one in the title of your podcast. Mm -hmm. You probably put it there because you know that it's so easily becomes a trap, right? But there's a number of them. And I'm on a part of a scientific community that has been trying to get the smallest set that does the most things. We think we've actually done that. Hi, I'm Ricky DeRiz, and welcome to episode 26 of the Mind That Ego podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Stephen Hayes, the founder and creator of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. This is one of the most well-used and well-researched forms of therapy in the world. It's even used by the World Health Organization as a tool for self-help and has almost a thousand different uh, clinical research studies into its effectiveness, to which it does extremely well. Um, This is a type of therapy that I was introduced to a number of years ago through reading Russ Harris's book, The Happiness Trap. And it's really an honor to get the chance to talk to Stephen. Stephen's one of the most cited living scholars in the world. Um, He's a prolific writer, having written 47 books and 675 articles that have been published in 20 different languages. Um, This conversation is far-reaching and vast and... (laughs) having gone into this with a bit of a a structure and an idea of what we would discuss we actually ended up covering so much ground that in a way spoke around the tenets of acceptance and commitment therapy it's very much an expansive and process driven conversation that really looks at the realm of thinking and thought and how that affects mood and behavior and the nature of you know being human and mental health and where mental illness fits within this spectrum i'd actually like to jump in as well to from from a different route because i know you do so much around like cognition and the relationship between cognition and reality and the way that language informs perception do you have like have any sense that technology has a has an influence in like the way that we we cognize and the way we perceive reality and that's like quite a a deep (laughs) a deep question to kind of kick it off but it it just yeah it seems like a an intriguing one to kind of start the the talk well let me give you an example of uh, just one way it's a small way maybe it's not as big enough for the grand question you asked but we know that uh, a deep sense of connection with others uh, requires being able to take their perspective, being able to feel what it feels like once you've done that to be you and to not run away when it's hard. Mm-hmm. Those three things predict um, you know, whether or not you even enjoy being with others. It predicts prejudice and stigma towards others, judgment of others, etc. And it also relates those same three things to whether or not you feel yourself to be whole and you have compassion for yourself. Because if you objectify and dehumanize others, you tend to do it to yourself. And the mm-hmm. It goes back mm-hmm. this way. 
Well, in the modern world, the camera can force perspective taking. Mm. You can see the bloated body of the Syrian three-year-old boy who fell out of the boat mm. on the beach. You can push empathy. You can see mm. the tears of the mother weeping as she finds her son dead on the shore. Mm. But what it can't do is open up a space in which you don't run away. It invites you to run mm. away. Run away to your little group that talks about those people or to your um, you know uh, sources of political anger or mm -hmm. wherever you can split off and do that instead of connecting in consciousness to the human condition and you as part of it mm -hmm. so our sense of reality is different i mean my son's 17 he likes Minecraft and all those kinds of games. He knows what time it is in Australia, Berlin, and Reno at once, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> because his friends are around the world. Yeah. I mean, he has friends who he's never seen mm -hmm. and considers them friends, and they play together regularly. Mm. So he has a worldwide consciousness. And, you know, things like climate change are very close in his, his consciousness, mm -hmm. which is a good thing, yes. Yeah. But also a burden when you see how badly it's being handled and a challenge for all. So I would say, yes, I mean, we're living literally in a, a different world substantively mm. as technology expands. And boy, if you don't see... How challenged that'll be when you check out Dolly and Chat GBT or something. You're just not awake. Yeah. You're yeah. just not you're asleep. Yeah. It isn't like a hundred years from now. No. Now it's arrived, hasn't it? If it was at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're in it. We're in that AI extended world. Mm. I'm in it in the work that I'm doing with mental health. I'm actively pursuing those tools and how to use them for good. Mm -hmm. So um, I gave you an answer that's a little superficial, perspective taking, empathy, et cetera. But if you dig in more, I mean, it's, it's all the way down to uh, how do you partition the world mm. in your thoughts? Mm -hmm. You know, we kind of are have a common sense partitioning with our nouns and verbs, mm -hmm. you know, cup. Yeah. yeah but, but the gravity, you know, you're not seeing the gravity. How even, even seeing the cup is, is light, right. Mm -hmm. In you. I mean, what you're, you call seeing is the activation of your retina. And, you know, you, we didn't evolve to actually see things as they are. We evolved to survive and it could be an active delusion. The whole thing could be mm -hmm. a, the matrix movie you know mm. an operating system so that you don't mm. have to look at green falling letters <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah let's hope let's hope there's more magic right now which is run by ones and zeros except there's no ones yeah. and zeros. even that is a metaphor yeah and you can never interact with the machine code that allows us to do what we're doing but you yeah. can interact with something that makes a file blue and rectangular and you better not mm. drag it over here <laughs> like a trash can. there's no blue <laughs> 
file yeah. it's not rectangular it's just an operating system yeah you know that's mm -hmm. not true well we don't yeah you don't know what the shape of my head really is yeah you know i i could have a shape of my head that's a we're not even assessing yet but yeah. it's some electricity some sense gravity some se you know we're living mm. inside our own so yeah this mm. is changing everything down to even what is anything yeah i like the that you described also like the code of of the screen as a metaphor it's almost like it's, it's an extension if consciousness is unfolding into technology is it does it have the same essence in its kind of original form that is being replicated to scale we become almost godlike and then produce our mini realities and maybe it will just go on and on like infinite regress into <laughs> a russian doll experience of reality <laughs> Yeah, you know, we have a future ahead of us that is challenging and so awesome and mm -hmm. so exciting. I mean, there are fewer people starving. There are fewer people mm -hmm. being killed. There are people, I mean, I know you see it on television, you know, but just do the math. Mm -hmm. Go look at the bones of people you know, like several hundred years ago and how many whacks and cuts <laughs> and pokes and stabs that yeah. led to a longer life, etc. I mean, we're living in a world that you know humans only could have dreamed of mm -hmm. and it's becoming better not worse despite what the media and all of us draws into yeah you know we get pie in the sky pretty quickly but i do believe the robots are coming i do believe mm -hmm. labor will be optional and now we see chat gpt mm -hmm. intellectual labor is optional yeah <laughs> who knew yeah my poor son who's <laughs> really <laughs> to computers and he's you know he knows how to program really well and, so, and then realized within the last week you know he can just ask chat gpt to do what he's been doing and boom he's got yeah. the code oh my goodness it's quite you terrifying know, I, I said to him, you better study ai son mm -hmm. don't just mm -hmm. be thinking of yourself as a coder because uh that's yeah. now something that's well could we create a world in which we get to focus on art and literature and community and spirituality and, mm -hmm. and health? And yeah, we could. Yeah. We could. Or we could create this this, you know, dystopian nightmare. <laughs> yeah. That choice point. Millionaires controlling the world and everybody else down there, you know, taking yeah. those. Yeah. I didn't think that we'd start here, but I love that we have. I love that we have like th this. So one thing it, it, it leads me to is the link between like cognition and you describe this so well in, in your work as well. You, you use the example of like the mug, but how the architecture of reality or like the architecture of what we might call a, a worldview is so often built upon the building blocks of, of labels and nouns and then we, we kind of have experiences and story and and this kind of thing as well and it's as if the media or or even even like not, not deliberate necessarily but just the portrayals of the world through the media through film through tv even through stories from our peers 
passes on like this replica or this this symbol of reality that we can kind of internalize and that becomes part of our reality if we're not aware of how that's creating a bit of a say a lens over our perception but as you say even our perception is just kind of unfolding in our brains to yeah. some extent or in our consciousness no what is i mean what's happening is that we're grooving certain patterns of thinking without necessarily knowing the process or cat or or stepping up to the responsibility of it underneath the clinical work i do in more therapeutic and intervention work on acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment training act in either case is this geekier theory of language and cognition called relational frame theory mm -hmm. which you know the the uh very thumbnail kind of thing is language is not associating. We've been trying to do that forever. It just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's relating and that it's, it is learned, but it's uh, under arbitrary contextual control. So you can apply it to anything. You can relate anything to anything else in any possible way. And I'll, you can easily show it, pick any relation is the father of look around, see two objects in your environment and then figure out how one is the father of the other. And you're going to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. And when you finished, it's going to seem apt. It's like, oh, yeah, that's that's really what's okay. Well, now here's the implication. Do the math of how many things are in your head. Mm -hmm. Well, you got 25, 30,000 words, but each word is related to scores or hundreds of different events that have happened in your yeah. life. It's yeah. not just tree as a word. You've you've seen a thousand trees right yeah. and you could probably yeah. distinguish among the trees you can talk about the features of the trees that's just one word of those forty thousand. Mm -hmm. then think of the fact that anything can be related to anything else if you're not convinced we'll just walk through it now do the math on what it would mean if you had in your head forty thousand things with let's just say 20 examples of each one mm -hmm. and that sequence matters when you think if you just have a jumble of words, that's different than one that's structured by grammar, and that any relationship is possible to anything. How many potential thoughts are in your head? Mm. Well, I've done the math, and the answer is <laughs> about twice as many, uh, a number that's about twice as large, at least, as how many molecules there are in the universe. Wow. Wow. That's how many thoughts are in your head, yeah. potentially. So... Why do we get down to these rigid, narrow, you know, I'm like this, or mm. the world's like that, or I have to do this? Or, and you can ask people, have you ever done it? If you just take mental health, I need to do this. Have you ever done anything like that before? Yeah. Did it work? No. <laughs> but if, if I do it better, I got to do more of it. <laughs> okay, dude, uh, what else have you tried? This and this and this. Were those kind of examples of the same thing? Yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> Okay, they didn't work, and you've tried many different variants, and those didn't work. So what are you going to do? I need to do it better. <laughs> no. Yeah. You know, the mind just gets grooved. Yeah. I mean, the classic thing is I'm a my I am a problem to be solved. And mm -hmm. when my problem is solved, then I can start living. Mm -hmm. And the problem is I have all these bad feelings and bad memories. And so I'll focus on them, which makes them more dominant. And then I'll struggle them, which gives them more power. And then I will eliminate them, which never happens because there's no delete button in your nervous mm -hmm. system. And then I'll be free. No, then you'll be entangled like a person in a net, in a fishing net. Yeah. And 
that's where you are now and it's going to get worse not better well that's the core of act but it's also the core of the implication of having this amazing tool we've got mm -hmm. but you can break out of it and all of our mindfulness and spiritual traditions everyone every single one comes up with ways to do it mm -hmm. repeated prayer chanting meditation silence uh you know dancing i mean every, it can be a lot of different things yeah but well and what are you trying to do you're trying to take that language monster and pull it off you like a you know bad <laughs> horror movie so that you can see it so that you have a little bit of choice to use this tool that could give you more than molecules in the universe in terms of ways of thinking about things mm. You know, those folks used to say, oh, you're not using a third of your brain space. There's two thirds that are not used. Turns out it's mostly nonsense. Mm -hmm. But the core of that idea, you're just using a tiny part of this amazing tool that we invented. We're the only creatures on the planet to do this. That's part of my basic research. I can show you mm -hmm. what the baby does, what the language trained chimps do not do. And if they don't do that, they don't develop what you and I are doing right now. Mm -hmm. It's part of what's in the basement of ACT is that RFT work. So we know we're extraordinary creatures. And boy, do we suffer amidst plenty. We're the only ones that know how to do that. We can create yeah. these wonderful things and we could live inside a nightmare. And so how do we rein in this mind of ours and uh, put it on a leash and use it when it's useful? Mm -hmm. Problems on the aspect. And use other parts when it's not, such mm -hmm. as the parts of us that allow us to have this more spiritual side to us. It's a challenge, and uh, we better get on it because uh, we need modern minds for this modern world. And now yeah. it's moving so fast that it'll you'll just drown. And uh, the ability of other people to groove you, yeah, I mean, Netflix knows what you're. You know, mm. I'm living in a very nice house. Why? Because I had a publishing company. I saw what Amazon was doing before it was anything. And mm -hmm. I bought a lot of Amazon stock <laughs> because I realized if it can say to you in the earliest Amazon days when I was just doing books, yeah. as, as a publisher, I was following this. If you like this book, you'll like that book. Oh my God. It's taken out the cognitive load. They're going to sell. Yeah. 60% of the books are sold at Amazon. Mm. Just the books, but not then. Now it's everything. My, my point being big data big tech knows how to groove your mm -hmm. mind mm -hmm. you better know something about how that works and bring just as a matter of responsibility i've got a responsibility because i got an ability to respond how am i gonna treat my own mind and, and I, I do that with my body i have exercise i got mm -hmm. i stretch i'm flexible you got to do the same thing with your mental tools or you're just going to be a tool. Okay, there are many avenues in this molecule-rich universe, that many pathways and grooves we can follow. Something yeah, More than molecules in the universe. More that's, more, that's so a few options we've got. <laughs> so something I, I, I that links to this, and it's maybe not continuing us in that direction, but... Is something I'm really interested in your your take on, which is quantum cognition and this idea of the brain being like a quantum computer. And 
when you say about all these potentialities, I wonder if there is that element of almost anything, because with the amount of numbers that we're talking in terms of thoughts, it's, you're getting close to infinity to some extent of like an infinite potential. Yeah. And yet, like you say, we we find our groove. We, from like a, I guess, a spiritual context, we develop a personality, we develop an identity, an ego-based self, which is no doubt the, the deepest groove that we have, the I that we experience. And it's like the the relationships that you mention, but always in the context, or I say always, but mostly in the context of I. So as we move through the world and, and we, we're relating to what is this in the context of, of me, or as as you say, in terms of the the need for empathy, we might be able to step outside and, and say, what is it in the context of this person, et cetera. Um, Oh, and there are so many. So, okay. So we've got quantum, quantum um, potential and thought is, is like an area I think would be in interesting to look at in terms of how, how distinct these grooves that we get stuck in, how, in your experience, how distinct can a person become if they're stuck in these grooves, if they, they've got a mental illness, if they're depressed, if they've got a panic disorder, anxiety, and they're really stuck. How distinct do you believe is possible for those grooves to change and, and to redirect and to find those different potentials in a world that is kind of demanding our attention elsewhere? Well, I think we know something about the ways and help knock people out of grooves that they're in. The different grooves that they're in are idiosyncratic, they're shared with others. But we're using uh, a way of thinking itself to try to even understand that, that is mathematically disproven and people don't know it, that is wrong, and that has been around for 150 years for really dirty purposes. When you say, I have depression, for example, you're adopting a normative category mm -hmm. that you're putting up top yourself. Mm -hmm just to show how silly it is if you took one of the last really big funded multi-site uh, studies done with major depression i say one of the last because even the the feds here in the u.s and the major uh, countries that do this kind of thing are getting fed up with funding it because they've been chasing these syndromes that are in the dsm or the icd for like 50 years and they never find latent diseases, which is the mm -hmm. whole purpose. So they're getting discouraged. But the last, what probably is one of the last big ones had 3,700 people in it, all having MDD, you know, mm -hmm. you know talk about mm -hmm. a personality persona, a mask, mm -hmm. I have MDD, okay. Um, almost a thousand, different unique combinations of those 3,700 people of just the signs and symptoms that are in those books. Never mind their values, you know, yeah. how they relate to the world, their spiritual beliefs, etc. And then if you say, well, how many people had a combination that's so unusual, only a hundredth of a percent of the whole population shared it, which is around five. Uh, and the answer is close to half. Hmm. 
So we're living inside categories. Even kids know where they are on the distribution and they say, ah, I'm gifted and talented and my IQ is 135. <laughs> well, that started with Galton. That started with his innovation, which was bell curves and standard deviations. He created them. But he created it in the same book that said, and when he's able to do that, he can sort people into unique categories. And the book was called Hereditary Genius. He's Erasmus Darwin's grandson, just like mm -hmm. Charles Darwin was, their cousins. And uh, it's not 15 years later before he's saying, and you know, we can use those tools for, but it's actually in the book is to make sure that only the upper class white folks in the UK can have children. And he created eugenics. Hmm. Well, the dirty history of these things is if we can get people to think in terms of their normative categories and we can shove them in there. And over and over again, I mean, the first person to ever use the word schizophrenia, it's only about four years later, he's talking about how we can keep them from having children because they're yeah, polluting yeah. the people. I mean, we went through an era and then we saw the implications by the way, it wasn't the Germans that started the really dirty deed. It was the Americans. Mm -hmm. Germans just borrowed word for word the laws that the Americans had used to already start sterilizing people. Mm -hmm. Massive number of people were sterilized in the U.S. Almost every state allowed it. Mm -hmm. For what? For intellectual disability, for personality disorders, for alcoholism, for anything that was different. Yeah. So we're living in... People need to wake up. They were living inside this story that you can do that to people and characterize them. Mm -hmm. and, and then it foretells your future. Well, it's false. Yeah. It's, it's well, there I go into something that's just too off topic, but I know it's, it, it's physics, me, uh, statistical it's, physics figured out a yeah. hundred years ago yeah. that you couldn't do that when they were trying to yeah. predict molecules of gas from a volume of gas. And we're just waking up to the fact that you cannot go from oh here's your iq to what your life is going to be like yeah because it interacts with all these other unique things so coming back to your answer we are massively unique and i and my colleagues have started to take these top-down normative categories pick anyone that you like and look to see how much individuality busts that up and almost anything that you believe and anything that you say about mental health or the behavior of people, I'll show you is untrue for one out of five, one out of 10, two out of three, for a lot, a lot of people. Not just untrue, like it doesn't apply, but sometimes it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Can I give you an example? Please do. Yeah. All right. I, I'm just, what you're saying is setting off so much that I'm, I've got to work oh, with my yeah, own impatience. Well, it keeps me awake at night. Oh my God, we have so much work to do to create a behavioral science more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. But yeah. take something that's really sweet and we all kind of like self-compassion. You got to have self-compassion because then you'll have compassion towards others. And you look at it empirically and by golly, it's true. You know, they correlate and you can do the big group designs and oh, it's there. Okay, and then you start doing high-density longitudinal dating and look within the lives of individuals. One out of five people, the nicer they are to themselves, the meaner they are to others. Hmm. And by the way, they're the ones for whom self-compassion doesn't lift up their life, of course. Hmm. 
It makes them miserable. And you've all seen it. You take care of the kids. I got to go meditate. You know, I need my bubble bath. You know, mm. dude, what are you doing? I mean, a good mindfulness tradition would have a monk that would whack you upside the yeah. head with a stick for yeah. that. Yeah. But we put it into the world with all our commercial entity. I mean, everybody in this yeah. doc is talking about mindfulness and self-compassion and even my own work, acceptance and values. Mm -hmm. Ooh, you better really dig down to how that whole thing fits together for you. Yeah. In such a way that it lifts you up and doesn't push you down or not even, it doesn't lure you into yet another egoic uh, category yeah that will kill your soul and yeah. harm the people around you do you know this is such a an intriguing point and i think you're you're also kind of pointing at this as well that self-compassion becomes its own its own category that we misinterpret a lot of time it's language-based we we don't have yeah. the philosophical spiritual grounding to fully connect to it's beyond it's not like you say it's not an ego identity it's a practice that essence of, of self-compassion no doubt is rewarding to <clears throat> you know each individual and their environment but if you do claim self-compassion as like i'm being self-compassionate like the example you give you can become more selfish so it's like how, how do you find those those lines well, between the way we the, distinguish. I mean, this the title of your, uh, you know, podcast. It's right on this, isn't mm -hmm. it? I mean, we're looking, mm -hmm. Ricky, at the at ego and kind of what is it mm -hmm. and how does it work, and it it happens in there. I mean, the, the the when your mama's eyes met yours when you were a neonate, you dumped endorphins in your brain, and so did mama because you're connected in consciousness. Yeah. But as we then start using this invention of ours of human language, which I think started out of cooperation, being able mm -hmm. to say a word and have somebody else bring something back, you know, um, and other good reasons to believe that the very brains that allow us to think this way didn't evolve because of their impact on cognition. That's upside down evolution. It's mm -hmm. way too costly to have a big brain, it eats massive amounts of calories makes it hard to have babies you, you know you got to take care of them for years just mm -hmm. so they can even walk around i mean it's like <laughs> a ridiculous <laughs> idea that you should have big brains yeah but if you you know follow out how it grew it's so correlated with the extent of your social network mm -hmm. and the complexity of your social network the hominins were, have been on this journey for a million years you know of gradually bigger brains for social purposes and then the fire being lit moment where you can learn a a, a, a sign or a symbol in, in one direction and drive it in two mm. you know, lots of animals have characteristic sounds or whatever gestures hoots and the listeners react characteristically and the troop does better but we're the only ones where the same part of the brain lights up uh, if i say uh, that's a metronome as uh, you reaching over and passing the metronome to me mm -hmm. i mean the the, the part of verbal understanding versus speaking are integrated because it it's an act of cooperation mm -hmm. but the it, you know and that's you know wonderful that we've invented that but then we get 
it's based on perspective taking you know if i say apple you have the perspective oh he wants an apple give it to me that learn it in one derive it in two relational thing mm -hmm. it then becomes not just same but different and opposite and bigger and, and that's that more molecules in the universe situation that is the father of can apply to anything mm -hmm. any relation can apply to anything well uh you get also iu i mean that mo mama's eyes moment mm. is two organisms interacting and the and the fact that we are a cooperative we the the brain sort of is set up to say that because it's so important mm. i mean that baby smile has to really goose mama's or else why would you take care of these rug rats they're gonna poop on the floor come on <laughs> What about? <laughs> They're so cute. And the same yeah. thing. The kind eyes. You know, the babies are tracking. They're they're mm -hmm. learning. The you know even before they get language to extend it, they're learning how to be a social primate. Well, IU and here there and now then, as it's learned, comes into forms an I here now. Mm. And there's a point mm. there and go out and look back at yourself it's a very wonderful and very dangerous point i think that's really the place where human consciousness breaks yeah from what is an incremental process of doing a better or better job of coming in contact with the one world in such a way that we survive i mean our sensory systems and so forth have all evolved to do that so have our communication systems but that point at which we can step back and look back at ourselves and think about ourselves that way either it can be this kind of uh witnessing noticing spiritual awareness that it's everyone always everywhere everywhere mm -hmm. you know, that you're part of the one or or so integrated with one that you can't even say part because there's yeah. no edge yeah you start talking in really spooky spiritual ways <laughs> everywhere i go there i am you know that yeah. kind of yeah either it leads to that and it does we're kind of wired for spirituality in that way or that moment leads to oh i am like this and the group needs me because i'm special mm. especially needy help me help me <laughs> or I'm, i'll make your group great again i'll sell a yeah. baseball cap and you can put it on there <laughs> <laughs> And we've got massive examples of this kind of narcissistic side or the entitled um, disability side. Yeah. And both of them are lies. I mean, so, you know, you have to be careful about the answer to who are you. You'll, you'll adopt that persona, yeah. that mask. It's not that you're going to have a pattern. I mean, we look like something, but that's not who you are. Mm. It's just how you're carrying yourself right now. And how do we help? Right now we're back to spirituality. How do we yeah. help people find? And I think the core of spirituality is softening the egoic self, the I am. But then, of course, it turns into dogma and religious wars and <laughs> yeah i'll kill easy. all the unbelievers who don't think like me and oh gosh yeah. again yeah we need religion for that so we're, we're gonna have to do it a different way um i i don't know i have 
I think we may actually find some ways. I mean, look at how many people are listening to your podcast mm -hmm. on these kinds of machines. Yeah. And how we can Why even facilitate your podcast because there's a yearning, I think, mm -hmm. for the kind of uh, experience of being whole and free as mm -hmm. a being who is spiritual, you can say, but don't objectify and grasp even that or you'll yeah. miss the point. But uh, it's hard even to talk about because yeah. language is about things. And spirituality is about no thing. Mm -hmm. It's the edgeless, dimensionless expansion of human consciousness that's possible. Yeah. Inside the I hear nowness of awareness that connects you and consciousness to others. Man, there's so many directions to go. I, I was um, studying a, a course from um, someone called, I think he's called Ron Unger. And he's part of the, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, I think it's the Institute of something to do with psychosis in America. And he's looking at spirituality and, and treatment within that um, framework. But he referenced the Zen cone, which is like mouth open first mistake. <laughs> and it's like, like you, you point to this is, it's ineffable, that dimension. The moment you try and talk, about it it's gonna it's gonna be lost in translation to some extent and equally this you know it's oscillation between like the transcendent which seems to be beyond language right there's a very like it, kind of strong at least in my experience a correlation between language as an internal experience cognition thought and something transcendent beyond that awareness or, or the observer, which is part of the act philosophy as well. Yeah. Um, and then such association to, to thought and to body and to identity that it, it has that narcissistic edge. Um, there, I'm trying to think of the what route to follow with this because today, okay, so I'll, I'll just share, I'll share what's present bring in some of my experience and, and we can use it as an example because this it's actually based on um something i'm going to write soon which is based on my own experiences of paranoia so I, i've experienced extreme paranoia in the past and psychosis and um panic disorder depression <laughs> all the classifications that you could find you know they, they've kind of surfaced in my life and for me paranoia is or has latent potential as a, a vehicle of awakening because it's that extreme end of tapping into something where the eye is so amplified and it's almost like when it becomes so immensely amplified it can just collapse in on itself into that experience of oneness right yeah. and i was um articulate i was writing today and, and trying to articulate this because I've been really lucky to have what I'd call like a contrast experience, which is something outside of those grooves that I can try and grow towards, you know, through, through my meditation practice and awakening to use that term loosely. And at different stages of, of my development, 
I'd started to notice that I would have, I'd have like extreme paranoia in certain situations, but then I'd also have what would be called a oneness experience. Yeah. And as you say, we, where you cannot even define a, a part, it's just like all process. Yeah. It's just the most beautiful and yet somehow natural experience ever. And, and I was in a similar state to that this morning. And from that contrast, I was able to explore this, this oscillation and, there was something in it where like in that for me the experience of oneness there's like a anonymity to it i'm aware who i am like i'm not i'm not i'm not completely dissociated i know who i am i'm present i'm so connected to my environment that that it's almost like the that eye sense isn't online and it connects me deeper well i'm just a part of it so i'm i'm in that flow whereas the paranoia is disconnecting yeah and yet it's like let's say that let's say that the energy or consciousness the interconnected consciousness is filtering through some system that says i'm the center of everything rather than i'm in everything and i'm just part of it it's like that that i amplifies and um I just wanted to share that as an example, because I've been really like meditating on this for a long time, um, because that's been a groove of mine that is teaching, but also highly distressing as well, (laughs) to say the least. But um, yeah, that was just a sharing to see what that kind of where that leads, I guess. Well, I think it's a lot of places for me to go from that, you know, the ACT community has done a lot of work around psychosis. And we've made some progress in the, in the sense of, uh, boy, if you had to pick a population that's objectified and dehumanized by the system, whew, mm-hmm. you know, where, you know, if you get fully into that whole thing as a mental health system, I mean, next thing you know, the only people, things people want to talk about with you are hallucinations and delusions and medications. And that's mm-hmm. it. That's who you are. And that's yeah. who you're going to be treated as. And, you know, there's folks walking around or voice hearers who are doing perfectly well as lawyers or doctors or whatever. They're everywhere. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, not just, uh, you know, Nash and uh, his Nobel Prize. That's just one example. Mm. It's everywhere. So how are we going to be doing that? Well, it's very, it seems scary to people. But I think you're right that, you know, that flip, you know, like the the paranoid place of I am threatened by and fearful of because has this edge, you Mm. know, of of me and not me and they're in a a relationship that's dangerous and it's grooved and you know some of those things are predicted i'm just going to riff a little bit do you know that if you want to predict in the developmental trajectory of who can develop psychotic breaks and and uh, paranoia there's things in here that are odd you know the i hate this kind of thing oh you just got the psychosis gene or something (laughs) It's yeah. not, I mean, of course, genes are part of it, of course, part of it. but here's one that's really powerful. Uh, people who have to um, uh, change language communities early, 
right at the mm -hmm. point when where self is establishing move to a, a, a country where they don't speak your language at age mm -hmm. four or five you know that you know your, your probability of actually developing and you can kind of see why there's the could you go into i and not i and then mm, yeah the language vowel yeah yeah um of course early kind of traumatic or negative experiences where you, you know you can retreat into that or mm. that's retreat's not the right word defend naturally uh, yeah. defend yourself and as a child of course what else would you do that's so exactly what you should do mm. you know the the i the experience of that allows empathy and connection and perspective taking of taking iu here there now then time place and person the perspective taking cognition that is there even before language i mean babies will understand something about the intentionality if you come in and you ask a baby to give you something by just pointing mm. you know they don't have even a single word yet depending on the context they will either give it to you or put it in the box because you're playing cleanup time and it's time to put away your toys they will they will guess about what you mean by that point mm -hmm. we're kind of deeply connected in that way as social primates and the the core i think of that collapsing and expanding that you're talking about is that I only make sense in the context of you here only makes sense in the context of there there's no here without there even if you go there there becomes here and here becomes there yeah um now and then the same thing and that's fine but recognize that they're connected and under special circumstances, psychedelic assisted therapy, you know, we're yeah. deep into doing that. Uh, psychosis, under special conditions, I think the I hear nowness of awareness that is not objectified becomes objectified typically. I'm yeah, like yeah. this. You know, and then you start def either defending or amplifying or wanting everybody to know about it if you're a narcissist or whatever <laughs> but you have a story and you're in the story and now you're captured by the story and you know so self and the concept of self ego etc easily mm -hmm. forms out of i here nowness but it isn't just i it's i you it isn't just here it's here there it's part of and under extraordinary conditions it's like three comets coming together to i here now it expands out and it's all love us everywhere always yeah if you ask the questions right 90 some percent of people will admit to experiences of sudden expansion of i becoming a we or of now becoming always or here becoming everywhere mm. i mean it isn't just tole yeah just the He's Buddha language to it but yeah, yeah and and our spiritual leaders are extraordinarily good they almost always have had a mystical spiritual experience almost always and they will talk about these kinds of things but they turn it in then to into a way a path or something yeah. such a, it has to be done in words and therefore well fine nothing wrong with that but can we can we find a place where we can work on the suffering that comes from 
our egoic eye in a way that doesn't require you genuflecting in front of a spiritual leader and mm -hmm. having the master give you the answers and but that you know is, is a kind of a a humbler form of that that's not prideful even about the pathways mm -hmm. and that empowers people to uh, find these consciousness expansion uh, gosh you know I don't want to turn this into a stone in a box, you know, that's precious because it's yet another round of the same thing. But yeah. uh, can we empower people to find a place in which I dissolves into we and here to there and now to always or, or now to Bennett to, to the, yeah, to, to time itself, yeah, you know, uh, disappearing. Um, I think the answer is probably yes. And I, one reason I'm working so hard on psychedelic assisted therapy is that even though I'm a child of the sixties and I know what a train wreck that was then <laughs> the first time, and I literally lost friends to it. I mean, I literally mm. had them die and how badly it was managed. Mm. I still do believe I'm enough of an old hippie uh, to <laughs> believe that you know the indigenous peoples are right there's ways of using aids whether it's being in a sweat lodge or chanting or praying or yes mushrooms or whatever the thing is guided properly that doesn't make it a certainty but it makes it more likely where you yeah. bring people in to a place where they have a chance to break out of the cage that we tend to live inside the story defended artificially amplified self into this uh, no thing sense of self yeah um now i i i think even no self can turn into the same egoic thing and i've had so many exactly. folks who want to like argue me into oh no the act model of self is really the same thing because blah blah blah, blah. and say okay okay but please can we quiet a little bit because i don't want to be shouted about about the no thing self because i don't have to you know listen very hard before i don't hear the same thing that you say that you're you're going after yeah you know what i mean so i, do. I uh yeah, I, do. I honor your journey <laughs> I'm, uh, i think it's awesome that uh you're speaking about this in this way because there's people who are objectified and dehumanized to need to hear it mm. and who are on a journey that could be really important to us and yeah. uh and everybody is it's just that's another form and um you know in our wiser cultural things we would often have a place for people who've had psychotic breaks you know they yeah. were special now that's dangerous too, but you know, yeah, some of the wisdom that comes from that journey could be shared by being a shaman or whatever. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, we, well, we're doing a better job of this, but we used to actually take away people's freedoms, shove them in a box, and fill them for your chemicals, whether they like it or not, or even yeah, operate yeah. on their brain, whether they're not going to lot, or sterilize them. I mean, back to eugenics. I mean, can we? Can you imagine? I mean, oh my God. But that's still going on. Yeah. Parts of that are still going on. Um, 
so yes that's really cool you know kind of you, you implode the system yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't they, i want to um coalesce these this into something but what came to mind was um kind of the Jungian approach like when you're talking about the um here and there and the tension of opposites and there does seem to be just to use my myself as a guinea pig again for, for this um in my experience there does tend to be an energy to these experiences the one way i've described it like when when having like disconnected like maladaptive or like an unpleasant i'll say a psychotic experience or paranoid whatever language in doesn't matter so much but there's a sense for me of being underwater and as if i'm under a certain pressure energetically so if you imagine like there's a an ocean of energy just in a i could just be walking to the shop yeah you know? <laughs> just just want to go and get some some bread and some eggs and i'm just walking to the shop and then having this kind of experience what i've noticed more recently because this has happened in recent times as much as i'd like to pretend this all you know in the past i've cycled back to these experiences from a different space and there tends to be a pattern where this eye experience amplifies and there's tension between me and the environment and uh, it and the only way i can describe it like you say the word implosion is an actual embodied feeling of this pressure building and i had this uh, my um my a group of my friends visited uh berlin in the summer and i had like an experience in a bar it was the first time i went to a bar in like two years and I was already stretching myself a little bit in terms of like the social environment and I'd spent a lot of time alone, a lot of solitude, a lot of meditation. And as soon as I walked into this bar, my experience was the, as an extension of the paranoia, like my experience has been essentially the background noise becoming about me. So it, it warps in my perception. So it will be a commentary on like how I'm being. And it's always like, I'm being weird or like, is that guy okay or whatever. Yeah. And I've got enough, enough awareness now, fortunately, I've been meditating for almost 10 years. So it's helped me, it saved me really, meditation. Um, there's enough there to question it and not fall fully into this, this delusion. But the interesting thing is when this has happened, that thought, is accompanied by this feeling of, of intense pressure energetically in the environment. And then something strange happens, which is that it builds and it builds. It's like my body's struggling to, to hold that. And there's this sen energetic sensation of <clears throat> And through that, that's when I'm then like completely calm. And I can feel the, the sense of stillness that I get deep in meditation. So it's as if like, I, it bursts this implode it implodes it bursts and then I'm like boom I'm now experiencing a, a oneness experience and the thoughts go then then it's almost like if you saw it in a movie like th those thoughts would be replaced by the actual background chatter and I'd look around and be like that was really odd this whole projection um so that's something I've noticed and and um potentially a, a bit of a tangent in terms of this 
tension of opposites and the transcendence of that. Um, I really, I'm really keen. Sorry, did you have? Yeah, I'll let you talk. Well, I haven't thought of, about it. You know, like ask. The, it'll come in a, a kind of orthogonal, but see if it if somehow touches at all. Uh, I've come to believe that this whole issue of self is connected to a deeper yearning, which is that of belonging. There are basic human needs. And I, when I was talking about the baby in the mother's eyes, uh, you know, belonging is really, really, really important for us as social primates. We will literally die without it when we first arrive. Mm -hmm. It requires those giants called adults to take care of us that's biologically programmed i mean it's um doesn't mean that you can't choose to be a hermit or whatever it doesn't mean everybody has to be social it doesn't no but it means you're part of a we by birth and you're and you're evolutionarily prepared to be that's why you're you know within 24 hours of birth if, if kind eyes meet yours you're dumping natural opiates in your brain i mean it, it's that important that you mm. really want to be able to recognize that sense of connection and belonging but you know also that you can lose belonging and it would be a threat if if you did it would mm. be i mean you can be attacked you can be excluded you can be rejected you can be cast out you can you know and again in our evolutionary history moving around in small bands and tribes and so forth that would often often mean death yeah if you're rejected cast out you're one dead monkey i mean mm -hmm. you're just not gonna be able to to navigate without the help of your mates um the, so you have this duality of uh of belonging being threat can be threatened and sort of this sense of special and unique can be used to try to be something in a group but it could also be criticized and you can be the source of excluding a group the oneness that we connect with i think is something more like we belong by a birthright. Mm. I'd be interested in your experience of that sense of peace and of expansion if belongingness disappears as an issue. Because like a paranoid thought that says they're talking about me and they're talking about me in critical ways or something wrong with me or they're going to hurt mm. me or they don't like me or they don't want me or they're going to... Well, these are threats to belonging. Maybe to even to our my physical existence. They want to kill me. They're going to chase me. They're, they're you know whatever. But when it goes poof, mm. it's something more like um, belonging is the floor that you're standing on. It's, it's not something you have to earn. You're a human being. You're, yeah. you're part of us. I mean, the very, if you think about it just this way, this maybe won't touch in the emotional way, but the very words that you use that 
would lead to being special and excluded and maybe being rejected or great and grand, the narcissism or paranoia, all of those different forms mm. were taught to you by other human beings. They had to care for you and teach you and help you and feed you and you yeah, know, clothe you. Yeah. And they, they brought you into the human community that is even able to do that because this is a tool that can be so important for mm. us, I think. So cooperation but now problem solving and now being able to do things like how many thousands of miles are between you and i right now yeah go thousands go thousands yeah yeah and we're talking in real time yeah i'm able to many people had to create the materials that allow this moment to happen mm -hmm. how many thousands of alive and dead people had to touch the wires that were made and the machines that work and the code mm -hmm. that was written i mean there's tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of human beings sitting here with us mm -hmm. empowering a conversation between two human beings i think there's a stillness and a oneness that comes when you realize that need for belonging has already been met mm -hmm. if you were the last person on earth it would still be with you as you would think about what you might want to leave behind if the aliens land and <laughs> investigate what happened to Ricky in, in his last 20 years on Earth. You know, yeah. we're part of, we're so social that we're social even when we're not social. Mm -hmm. Our minds are a social yeah. creation. Language is a social creation. Our community, I mean, everything is social, everything. Mm -hmm. So, it's just one needs of the many, you know, I think we yearn to feel, we yearn to, you know, be able to have our own sense of purpose and to be able competent in accomplishing that. Each of the, we haven't talked about psychological flexibility and the model that's underneath yeah. the act, but every one of them is linked to a basic human yearning. But this one, this self one, now the tragedy of the egoic self, whether it's narcissism or, um, also use paranoia as a, as a flip but if, if, if if i don't you don't feel objectified by me doing it i would Absolutely. normally think of as the flip being something more like uh, pathology yeah you know i'm broken yeah but those are i think are just reflections of the mishandling of that need and its intensity is a reflection of the importance of that need yeah when you have that moment of awareness, when you have that psychedelic spiritual thing, when you have that spiritual, when you have that paranoid, when you have, the intensity of it is because belonging is so important to us. We yearn for it. We were born yearning for it. Mm. And the irony is we have it. We do. Yeah. You wouldn't even be able to think and talk about it the way we do if you hadn't belonged enough that mm. other human beings cared about you in that way. And yet, I would say the vast majority of human beings walk around most of the time feeling as though their belongingness is, at, is threatened yeah, or has to be earned or is conditional or will go away it was only because whatever the reasons are yeah 
it's a, a tragedy of the mm -hmm. egoic mind is that it turns it would be like living being in a room with a big gigantic banquet and you're down on the floor chewing on the table leg because you're so hungry <laughs> yeah it's sad and sweet mm -hmm. and poignant and bittersweet hard to be human you know something that came to mind when when you were talking was the separation of that word belonging as be longing or like longing to be yeah you know and and this sense of because you like you said you could be the last person on earth and yet if you you could still meet that longing to be if you sense the interconnection of everything and, and being completely like even you know this like this um beautiful example as well because people talk of interconnection a lot in spiritual terms but also in the material in how like we're all made up of the atoms from the beginning of time sure. and you know we're made of stardust and all this beautiful sure. um stuff but my you know my, my perennial struggle has always been that like um meeting my need for time alone and meeting my need for community and it's interesting mm -hmm. that so I've, I've got um one of your quotes i think is i think is from a liberated mind which is uh we hurt where we care and we care where we hurt yeah and the irony is which is kind of uh become clearer when, when you were talking as well the irony is the thing that I, it's like a meta problem because it's like the thing that I experience, i.e. paranoia, and like in the past, it's just been like depression and, and all, you know, um, essentially being different, essentially being somehow misunderstood or like just not fitting in with society, all the ways that one can self-ostracize based on these cultural messages and stuff. Um, that's the thing that separates me. And do you know what, what I have to say, which is, which is also beautiful is that through, so in that experience in the bar, when that implosion happened, um, and I will get emotional, likely talking through this, but as well as stillness, there's this huge gratitude and sense of compassion and, uh, oh, sorry. <clears throat> like being able to be open with my friends about it um like i just felt so much love for them in that moment because it was like through this growth sense of brokenness and this sense of uh fragility and this this sense of um i'm different from everyone else that kind of dissolved into these people care for me right but i could feel it like i i i just connected to it in a way that i do struggle with a lot of the time to really really connect to that um so so there is this like it's this like almost like imploding into love um i know you mentioned this in your ted ted talk as well like love love is is all there is or everything there is yeah um and there is, yeah, that there is that that kind of experience. I think is so important that we we learn about um, talking for myself that I learn about, but also you know how 
how does one break through that uh, kind of experience, you know? You know, um, just being and being loving are almost uh, the same thing. Mm -hmm. They're aspects of the same thing or they're sort of sides of the same thing or qualities of the same thing. And uh, you could say that, you know, we, we learn, we, we uh, you know, yearn to belong. You could say we yearn to just be, and you could say we yearn to be loved and loving. Um, and we can use this problem-solving mind that we've got to help us on that. Uh, but it's tricky. It's full of two-edged swords, you know, the, because when you buy into it and adopt it and become it and assume it and make it true and you hold on to it, and then you're just a, a thought, you're a thing, you're a position, you're a story, you're a, you know, a rap or a mm -hmm. category or a, and there's whole great portions of you that we're we're there are there a part of our journey that are not captured by that wonderful invention we came up with but that yeah. is not all of us that are then lost to you i mean you your felt sense your intuition your your um, sense of spirituality your connection to others that are beyond words i mean have you ever had the sense of something that's really special and loving like a moment that actually happened that you're very cautious about talking about it that you don't really want to you know like if i said something like, like if you think of somebody who you really love he loves you he loves you and you just and i ask you i'll say why mm. that'd be a pause there like i almost don't want to go there um how do i love thee let me count the ways yes we're coming up on valentine's day but they can see it. <laughs> about it. it's really close to something and you know it you know it yeah because it's so beautiful yeah but then the person has a they had an auto accident on the way home and you don't know it until they arrive and they're not going to be beautiful again their whole life so i guess you don't love them right i mean do you know what i mean there's it's a essence yeah there's something i mean it's same thing with just intensely spiritual experiences or you know that zenish thing of those who know don't speak and those who speak don't know mm -hmm. um where be because language divides you can't yeah. say a word that doesn't invite you into this not that yeah as distinct from yeah and we're talking about experiences of oneness and connection that doesn't divide it, un it unifies yeah and so um we yearn for that, we're born for it, we're prepared for it, and we've developed tools that will help us, but are really, really, really close to uh, making it almost impossible. That's why I say, you know, we need modern minds for this modern world, because we're experiencing right now expansion, an expansion of human consciousness, mm -hmm. driven by technology, that is now going at light speed, so fast that our cultural traditions can barely even 
notice, probably we notice it, but can't characterize it or give us almost any guide because we're really out into brand new territory. This never happened on the history of the planet. Mm. I think even like it, I'm the closest thing like, you know, Gutenberg or something, but that's so far away from what we've got now with instant across the world, all voices can be heard almost all. And I think we're going to manage this. I think we're going to find ways. Um, the way that I'm trying to do it as a mental health person is let's walk away from some of the top-down nor normative categories yeah. enough with yeah. Galton's eugenic dreams. It doesn't yeah. really, we haven't talked about why, but I can walk through this, the, the math of why it doesn't predict your, your journey mm -hmm. anyway. And start focusing instead on processes that empower. And we've learned a lot about that. And they are in our wisdom traditions. And, you know, our mindfulness processes are a big part of it. But so is compassion and learning how to live a values-based life, how to care about others and put your feet behind that and create mm -hmm. habits that, so even when you're not watching, you're doing things that are more like how, who and how you want to be. Um, so, you know, your podcast is about this mental health and spirituality thing. Well, I, I think over time, those will become one thing. Yeah. Not mental disorders and treating mental illness. Oh, please. <laughs> I love that you no. say that. <laughs> I'm talking about your mental health. Yeah, which is part of your behavioral health, which is part of social wellness, which is part of you being part of a planet where the we matters. And yes, climate change is important. And yes, of course, economic disparities and immigration and racism and how we treat people who are different and gender and sexual differences and uh, ah, <laughs> all, all those things we need to step up to. We need mm -hmm. a spiritual transformation. But we're not going to get it inside gurus and religious groups only. I mean, I'm fine with empowering it. I've written a whole book on ACT for clergy and pastoral counselors. Mm -hmm. The U.S. military chaplains teach ACT is one of three things they teach mm -hmm. other chaplains in. I've helped with those programs. I'm fine with that if you have a religious commitment. And spirituality and what religion is about. It's too important for the history of the world for us to only think in terms of things that evolved culturally thousands of years ago. Yeah, There's yeah. things that are involving culturally now that are also important to that journey. It doesn't subtract from the other ones. And um, we're going to have to find a way. I think we're going to also have to think about this in a way that is... Uh, not top-down normative and categorical, but yeah. bottom-up process-based and and individual. Well, individual is the wrong word because it's almost the exact opposite of individual. We had to make up a word to talk about it. We, we've made one up called idiomic. Why? Do you know the word, word normal in the English language didn't go into the dictionary until 1848? <laughs> You can hardly have a conversation at the kitchen table without using normal, typical, usual, or average. Yeah, it's everywhere. Because yeah. that's how we've been taught to think for 150 yeah, yeah. years. And what we need to think about, it's different, is not that 
nor <laughs> kids no longer want to do. Yeah. You know what? I used to teach classes in abnormal psychology. Do you know you can't uh, sell a book now in abnormal psychology? They're called, psycho They're called psychopathology. If you call it abnormal psychology, the kids won't buy it. Right, they refuse yeah. to buy the book. <laughs> because <laughs> they've got this device. Yeah. That has taught them I can have it my way. You know, it's my music stream. It's not a radio station. Mm. You know, it's my particular choices of uh, what I watch. It's not something that's going to be forced on me. I get to do it my way. Well, where does normal fit into that? Mm. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's it's some sort of something out of the 1800s. And enough already. You are not... You don't have to fit into a normal category. Bust the whole idea of normal. Yeah. Because it's mostly a lie and it's and it doesn't tell you what to do. So what could? Well, you know, it's like how people learn to take a pick a diet that really helps them or an exercise program that really helps them. You're gonna have to do it in a way that's more focused on what works for you in a way that's rational and guided by science, but isn't top-down dictatorial, this is how you have to be because the same thing with spirituality. Yeah. The same thing with mental resilience, mental health. It's um, not one out of five. It's not the broken ones who have a mm -hmm. disorder. That, that's all this bull. It's anybody who was awake during the last two years of COVID knows it. It's all of us every day. Yeah. And what is the it? We're working on our mental health. And that means our ability to visit the spiritual side of us, to be more loving, to have relationships that really work, to care about others, to bring more compassion and kindness into the world. As a, and us as a participant in the one. Mm. Yeah. Even to say those sentences, you know, probably sounds like wouldn't land with everybody. But what's underneath it does land with everybody. Yeah. Because we all have our own like filtering part of this to, to filter stuff through our own lens. Yeah our own machines yeah. um how are you doing for time i'm aware we're we're approaching um an hour and a half i i'm conscious of i don't want to open too many tangents if you're strapped for time okay. have you got a bit longer or thank you for the kindness of let me look have a peek uh yeah i'm good i can go another half an hour at least if Sweet. you would like to up to you i i would be happy to yeah because um I'm going to move on to, to Thomas Saz because that's that's that his name's been okay. in, in mind. But before that, um, you know, a huge moment for me was reading M. Scott Peck's Road Less Traveled. And um, <laughs> in particular, I think I remember what section because he talks about love and he talks about kind of growing through love and, and that kind of thing as well. And he mentioned, I think is towards the end of the book, that depression can be an act of grace. Hmm. And I remember when I read that, it just landed and I was like, 
and I was with, with my friend at, at, at the time, my, my housemate, and we had a lot of conversations about mental health and, and that kind of thing. And I remember sharing it with her and we both just looked at each other, just like, depression can be an act of grace. Now we, we, we both had that spiritual dimension. We both had our different practices and it kind of spoke to an intuition around, it's not the one in five, it's the five in five. And yet yeah. the one in five, you know, people like me that are having these like, like, you know, depression, suicidality, paranoia in my past, as well as, as occasional flutters in, in my present, they're the moments that cause you to look at, at this, at the self, at your own psychology, because you don't really have a choice. And I know for yeah. me, it was like survival. I've got, I've got to do inner work for survival. And, and it really was yeah. like, like that. And, um, I think there's something intriguing in that we, we don't. So what I'd, I would like to segue into is that what we don't want to do is romanticize, right? Cause there's a risk of like right. romanticizing mental illness. And I've experienced myself start to go in that direction and can see the, um, and that becomes another identity and it, another trap along the way um but there's this balance to be found in terms of not romanticizing mental illness yeah and also allowing it to to be an opportunity an opportunity for growth an opportunity for insight and i'm a big believer that all of these experiences are lessons they all teach something profound yeah. like for sure um and I'd, I'd like to use that to, to circle us back to Thomas Saz, because I, I read um, The Myth of Mental Illness recently. Incredible book. Absolutely incredible. Um, I love his way of thinking. I love how direct he was, because he was around in the, the 60s as well, I believe, like when he, he wrote that, around in the 60s. And um, it tapped into what I feel like... A lot of people, if they really look in their heart, will intuit, which is that there's more to this. There's more to this than classification and division and labeling. That there is, uh, and you mentioned earlier, like indigenous tribes, shaman. Again, what we don't want to do is like <laughs> create a subculture yeah. of self-assigned shaman who uh, romanticize it. But there is that case, isn't there, of looking beyond the myth and I, I I'm at, I'm genuinely so grateful I'm so grateful that that you brought this topic up because I wouldn't have personally and and I'm I'm always tentative because I'm not qualified I'm not a psychologist you know I'm, I'm independent I'm more of a journalist with my you know my own experience to rely on and a lot of study as well a, a lot of study but yeah it, it I cr yeah, creates a, a tentativeness, but I, I do feel that it's so important that people like you are, are seeing things in this way, the spectrum. Um, I, I made, I'd love to send you this, this video if, if you're up for, for watching it um, at another point, but I made a video on there's no such thing as depression, which for me to do that was huge. Like I, I was so nervous posting it. Sure. But it spoke to to what you mentioned around um and i believe when i was was looking at your work it was in an interview um that you did possibly of russ harris um 
around the, like what we mean by depression as a label right and how that whole system operates in terms of this is what has been identified as depression and here's the concept that we have and we have a checklist of symptoms that someone who's trained and I, i'm like i feel like i'm taking a risk sharing this with you now but whatever like we have people that are trained that have internalized this this checklist this understanding this concept maybe they're also bringing in their, their own experience or whatever and then you have in terms of a diagnostic you have someone that has to relate to their experience verbalize it because we don't have those biomarkers as far as i'm aware there's still not not much there verbalize it either through we get a lot of like self-diagnostics now with like google and that kind of thing but hopefully with a <laughs> with a professional and go through a process where they share and, and there's this kind of feedback loop and with this video i was just pointing to how what we label depression is the result of looking at so many different experiences of people finding correlations developing a, a thread of understanding and that that label is actually really important to validate uh, and it can be really good to validate but it can also be a hindrance and and it was for me and and I wonder if you could talk to that that wasn't a question it was just me kind of riffing yeah. off a bit but talking to this labeling because we're in, we're at a time where it seems that everything is classified to like the most minute you know this idea of concept creep like everything's class classified as pathology what are your views on that and how do we overcome it yeah we're kind of running this thing out to a point where it it uh, reaches its logical uh a dead end mm. and i do have to say i'm i'm suspicious of the cultural forces behind that that are making money off of it a lot of money off of it mm -hmm especially a $1.4 trillion industry uh, that is only too happy to biomedicalize human suffering and finds ever more elaborate ways to do it. Uh, you know, even children are uh, being exposed to massive amounts of chemicals that the human nervous system never evolved to be able to withstand with... Uh, side effects that are now known to be pretty long-term and that um, mm -hmm. the same industry will only too happy to mar market yet another thing to manage the side effects. I mean, in the US of A, we can have uh, advertisement for that and we, we will have advertisements for the constipation produced by opiates or for <laughs> tardive dyskinesia produced by the yeah. uh, anti- uh, psychotics uh, uh, so-called you know so it's an endless loop of more and more and more you know and you can go out into the open ocean off of florida and catch the fish and they're going to contain painkillers antidepressants and antipsychotic medications mm -hmm. and even those words are marketing terms they're all lies they're not antidepressants they're not antipsychotic <laughs> that's not what those chemicals mm -hmm. are I've done randomized trials of ACT to help people get over resisting resistance to prescribing medications for, you know, for the right time in the right place at the right amounts for the right period. I'm not an anti-medication person, but, and I'm taking it there, but I want to come back to the other place you were taking it, which is 
there's something uh you know i tell clients at some point not early on because it can be very invalidating and it tempts people into self-aggrandizement that you're one of the lucky ones because there's a whole lot of folks out there in the five out of five universe who are putting one foot in front of the other and getting through life kind of sort of but not in ways that empower their relationships or open up the possibility of what they could be about at work or, mm. uh, you know, empowers them as citizens and as caring creatures who could help others on the planet and on and on it goes. Pain will give you a chance, you know, mm -hmm. and you're looking at a panic disordered person in recovery. I mean, that's part of my journey. And I've, absolutely believe that three years of panic struggle was like a massive uh, gift but i don't want to make it special i've had i was kind of walking through this at one point in a workshop and somebody came up to me a young person almost weeping says she wants to be an act therapist she wants to be a good therapist uh, but she had a normal childhood she was happy most of her <laughs> life <laughs> one of the unlucky ones <laughs> and, and i i paused and i kind of looked at her and i said you know what what you just said that's enough she's in pain over the fact that she wasn't in enough pain so she's not going to be a good therapist mm -hmm. because that's the same thing mm -hmm. the same thing so you know we all have plenty enough to to be able to say, okay, this far and no farther. You know, there is a lesson in here and I am going to learn it. And uh, if you do it in an egoic and I'm special and grand way, or I'm pathetic and broken way, you can't learn it because mm -hmm. that's not mm -hmm. the lesson. The lesson is outside of those categories. So I really do worry about how, on the one hand, young people will really get righteously pissed off about being pushed into a category, you know, whether it's their fashion choices or their political beliefs or whatever, they, they, they want to be themselves. And yet, we're teaching people to recite the list of things that they have supposedly yeah and you know people will come into therapy and the first five minutes will be label after label after label after label after label that the person really wants to understand they have yeah and it's kind of like now that i'm inside this system of self-objectification and dehumanization that has all of these different forms <laughs> help me to be whole and free well dude yeah <laughs> Uh, maybe a contradiction you know you may have to soften all that and show up to the fact that no you're not special in your suffering and your suffering can be used if as a guide as a help you may come to see it on the other side of it as a precious gift yeah and i think it is but i won't say that to people early on that's but so i was on the um on the national institute of drug abuse um advisory council which is technically decides whether or not you can spend those billion dollars 
and you know, it was appointed by Donald Shalala, head of HHS, the Health and Human Services, a cabinet officer in the Clinton administration. But of course, he didn't know me from Adam. The people at NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Use, part of the National Institute of Health, the leader there, Alan Lashner, became the head of American Association of uh, for Advancement of Science, a major, major scientific group, really good guy. He kind of liked me and he put me on there. And, you know, and I'm, you know, well, what do, you know, what do I know about substance abuse? I mean, I'm just, and I, but it turned out, what do you mean, what do I know about substance abuse? My dad was an alcoholic and I, mm. I lived this, but I, I really enjoyed my time there. But I'm going to say something a little critical of Alan. You may not have seen it if you didn't, if you're not in the U.S., but there was a whole time of, uh, this is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. I'd show a fried apple, fried like egg, rather, you know, etc. There was a whole kind of thing about addiction as a brain disease, and trying to what decrease the stigma and the dehumanization of people who struggle with substances. Yeah, it's even more maybe. Well, I don't know about psychosis. Psychosis is pretty damn dehumanized. But <laughs> depression, anxiety, you know, you know, Congress people have to, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you, but you get over into drug addiction. Boy, that's, you know, you're starting to get close to the people who should be sterilized or going back to the 150 year old of eugenic agenda. But okay. That these are drugs, this is your brain on drugs, going to make more compassion because then you're going to see addiction as a disease. Well, it doesn't meet the definitions of a disease, but okay, I get that. Well, then we start doing the research on what happens when you convince people that they have this disease and what happens to people around them. Mm. One of, and I, I was doing work on implicit cognition at the time. And one of the most stigmatizing words that you can give to somebody is that they have a brain disease. Well, think about it. If 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 your brother had a brain disease and you thought, you know, they might be unreliable or do destructive things or whatever because of it, yeah, you'll have compassion towards them. But their horizons in your mind will now be massively foreshortened. Yeah. Don't expect anything of that person. They've got a brain disease. Yeah, your hope for them, the potential, the concern you have, the limitations you might put in, the you know, this is this is what we mean by not destigmatization. Bullshit. That's not destigmatization. That's putting people in a box and then treating them with pity. How? How do you feel when you're put in a box and treated with pity? Has that ever happened to you? Probably has in some way, shape, or form. You've probably seen it in some way, shape, or form. And if it's not pity, it could be something else. Treating them as if they're dangerous or treating them as if they will, they're stupid or stupid. You know, so I'm, I understand the heart of it. I don't want to criticize it, you know, and it is true that there's this place of invalidation and of dehumanization that comes inside a lack of understanding that these labels are designed to help correct. Yeah. 
but the labels themselves then become the instruments and tools for another face and form of the same basic thing in which the, the potential of a human being is squeezed down and you're required to live inside that category and it'll never leave. I mean, once you're inside borderline personality disorder, do you ever leave? Is there any way out? Mm. There's no way out. But I know of, I mean, it, even, uh, you know, things you've talked about, you know, people will carry those categories in their head. Does that have an impact on them? Yeah. I mean, it's a bold thing and a wonderful thing. That's why I, you know, honored your, uh, your courage. And can we find another way? And the way I would like to find is one where we dig down to the processes that empower or that entrap. You've got one in the title of your podcast. Mm -hmm. You probably put it there because you know that it's so easily becomes a trap, right? But there's a number of them. And I'm on a part of a scientific community that has been trying to get the smallest set that does the most things. We think we've actually done that. I just recently did, I, I and my mates, uh, Joe Sorochi and uh, Stefan Hoffman uh, in Germany, um, looked at every randomized trial ever done in the history of the world for mental health outcome that collected processes of change information and identified through the statistics that are considered to be proper, the functionally important pathway of change or that intervention. It took us so three years to do it because 55,000 studies we had to read and uh, a team of 60 in three years. So it's current through 2018. Good. Maybe just published it. And you can capture 80% of everything you need to know by saying you need, need to be, you need to learn to be more emotionally open and cognitively flexible to take the perspective of others and to define yourself as that kind of perspective taking a sense of self. Focus on your values, get your feet moving towards them and show up in the now. Attend to what's important. In one shape or form, thinking flexibly and fluidly, feeling flexibly and fluidly, perspective taking and attention being flexible and fluid, clear values and habits built around them. Now you add the social cultural thing. By the way, relationships really matter. That's a big chunk. Mm -hmm. And by the way, you got You have a body. You got to take care of your health. So diet, sleep, exercise, drinking. Mm -hmm. By the time I've finished what I just said. 92% of everything we know about how change happens is in those paragraphs. Now, how to notice them and retain them is part of it. Mm -hmm. How to get them going in the beginning is part of it. You know, ACT has these acceptance. Well, that's about emotional openness. Diffusion, that's about cognitive flexibility. Attention to the now. So that's right inside it. This witnessing, noticing, transcendent sense of self. That's core of spirituality, which we've been talking about chosen values and commitment to building habits around them. So act alone, just act and mindfulness measures accounts for 55%. But if you get a little more flexible, so here's what I'm saying to you. We know at least a big chunk 
after 50 years of randomized trials, some of them had mediational analyses adequate to figure out why do they work. Most of them don't. But all the ones that do, if I look at every single one, I can put them into a paragraph I can say on a podcast. Yeah. So why don't we get about busy, busy putting those things into our schools, our churches, our work groups, our our hearts, our heads, our hands, you know, into our podcasts, into our therapy programs. You don't have to call it act, call it anything. Call it, I don't care. Put it into our own. Well, and life itself will do this. I mean, life itself will teach you the limits of ego or of running away from your own pain or of buying into your stories or of attending to only what's broken about you or forgetting even that you get to choose what you're about in life and that instead mobilizing your behavioral resources around running away or fighting or subtracting your own history instead of showing up to the possibilities of the uh, this moving moment of now that creates mm -hmm. the future that you want. So I don't think it's that complicated. I think the alternative to all these normative top-down categories is you, probably with technological aids, mm -hmm. with wearables and regularly reporting in, look at the processes of change that are known to matter. I'm actively developing apps that will do this, by the way. That's one reason I did But even if... You could do it yourself with paper and pencil. I'm rewriting Get Out of Your Mind Into Your Life right mm -hmm. now. The, my, my five minutes of fame when it was written in Time Magazine and a five-page story and beat Harry Potter for one glorious week on <laughs> Amazon. Get Out of Your Mind Into Your Life is the first big act self-help book. And it works really, really well. But we're, and we've shown that randomized trials and all that, but we're rewriting it now to, to include more of what I just said, because 20 years later, it was published in 2005, almost 20 years later, we learned a lot. And not just us, a whole bunch of other people learned a lot. And, and there's a consilience that fits together. And it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense evolutionarily. If you can't vary, you can't evolve. If you can't select the winners, you can't evolve. If you can't retain the winners, you can't evolve. And learning how to fit that to context because no adaptation is good for everything everywhere always. So I think we can bring our science tools to the bottom-up world our children are growing up in that 10 years from now will, when we sweep away the disgusting legacy of top-down normative categories and Galton's eugenic dreams of mm -hmm. forcing people into who's up and who's down and stop sorting people and start empowering people that we'll be able to step forward and say on our podcast and everywhere else, are you working on these processes that we know are liberating and uplifting? I walk through the act vision on that and a liberated mind. And people can read it and it's filled with science stuff. And in the back of the book, it's a ridiculous amount of science. I don't burden it with references other than little <laughs> things. You have to go to the back of the book. But, you know, I mean, just what I'm talking about, the ACT world is sitting on about 4,000 4, studies, including 1,000 mm -hmm. randomized trials. So we learned a lot. Um, in other areas of the world, of science, when you focus on it and work on it, it gets better. But do you know, over the last 50 years, the effect sizes, the magnitude of the impact, 
that you can get from evidence-based methods to change mental health problems hasn't gone up one iota. Mm. And I think it's because we got drawn into this protocol for syndromes vision. Yeah. Let's find out what you have. And here's a 400 page book that we're going to shove in your mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, to which I just say, no. Mm-hmm. I think the kids are right to not buy the abnormal psychology book. Of course, they just retitled them psychopathology because <laughs> they yeah. still want to sell the books. But boy, they, I think the kids sense there's something wrong with mm-hmm. all of this biomedicalizing and human suffering and this categorizing and shoving people into categories. Now, there's things in there that are important, even the medications. So don't put, turn me into a cartoon. <laughs> Yes, if you can catch a, a fish in the open ocean, then they're, they've got antidepressant. It's too much, yes. Mm. One out of four women in the United States of America last year on antidepressants, no, that makes no sense. There's no scientist, none, who's careful and cautious who would say that's right. Mm. But it ain't just the medications. We're shoving all kinds of psychotherapy and stuff on people inside the wrong vision. Yeah. The right vision, I think, is something a little close. I mean, here you're saying things like, you know, dep- depression is a gift. It is. Depression is a natural kind of evolving of a system mm-hmm. to a logical end that if you look at it, it's like, oh, okay, well, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Well, it shouldn't be. Oh, okay, here's the door you can enter into a hotel California called depression and it'll never leave. <laughs> I don't want to invite people into that hotel you can't leave. I mean, if the words help you on a journey that's empowering, okay, I don't care. I'm not even, even that I'm not fighting about. But I really want us to focus on the needs of the five out of five and the one out of five. And I think if we do that, the natural impact will be to stop objectifying and dehumanizing because everybody will see that they have a stake. And that doesn't mean everybody has depression. It doesn't mean everybody has a disorder. It means we are all working on our mental resilience and on the trap doors that are built into the human mind and exacerbated by our culture in the most unwise portions of it, but are helped by our culture and the wiser parts of it, which tend to be in our wisdom traditions and our spiritual traditions and some of the deeper clinical traditions. And, and uh, Thomas Zaz, boy, was he beaten up. Like, I mean, he was just beaten like a, you know, like taking sticks to baby seals. A disgusting <laughs> metaphor, but that was just true. I mean, man, you just, academic yeah. psychiatry and, and moneyed interests and tortured him. Yeah. But I think that analysis is held up much better than a lot of the alternative now analyses that said it's always just around the corner with just enough and when Mm -hmm. we have the full genome and when we have the and now take genomics we know it's a lie Mm -hmm. we have a quarter million people with full genomic analyses and we can't account for even the small percentage you're seeking biomarkers (laughs) no it's it's Genetics is part of it. Mm. So is epigenetics. So it's just what's happening within your body based on what you eat and do. So is 
your psychological processes, those are social cultural. I mean, cells are systems for turning environment and behavior yeah. into biology. You yeah, we're one complex system, and the one goes all the way out to the one. It goes all the way out to all of life on the earth. Mm -hmm. I mean, that level. Now, to make it solvable, we can do complex networks. We can we can think in ways. I mean, Netflix does it. <laughs> I mean, the machine learning algorithms aren't like. Oh, if you like this, you'll get that. No, it's way, way, way beyond that. Mm -hmm. But Chat GPT is so far beyond that, mm -hmm. and we're we're in the horse and buggy era with uh, mental health, and uh, you know everybody can buy a car as long as it's black. You know that that's so yesterday. That let's get on about the business of understanding mm -hmm. human complexity in a way that empowers and doesn't categorize yeah and i think that's the future of our science it's we better come into it with a lot of humility because if we get into that clearing and say well what can we learn you're going to look around and see monks in there and you know they've been there for thousands of years you're going to find a lot of humanity in that clearing it ain't going to yeah. be just the you know biostatisticians yeah i love i love that you um amongst all of that which which i i fully agree with i love that you reference like the psychology the psyche the, the human condition it being a complex system and it kind of links all the way back to, to the beginning of this talk as well in terms of the grooves and it's almost like the industry the institution itself the psychiatry has found itself in a groove of isolating symptoms or isolating biochemistry and i think you know one one thing and I know this is absolutely not what you're saying, and I'll be clear also for what I, how I talk about this topic as well, because I had a, a response to something that I, I posted on deconstructing depression. Um, someone reached out on Instagram, I say reached out. It was a bit of an attack, and it, it caught me off guard. But they said that I was letting down um, being a mental health advocate and all this stuff. And I was like, you know, I'm open for a conversation. But one thing that I'm absolutely not trying to do in talking um from this space is to minimize the struggle you know it is to take anything away and i think the the issue is that you know come again like the acceptance compassion of like wherever you are at it has to be met fully you know and, and meeting it fully and that's not to say because i know i went through a spell where i was on antidepressants and it actually allowed me to outsource responsibility. Now, like you, you say with clients, you don't say certain things straight away. That is a statement that would have triggered the hell out of me some time ago. Now I understand that differently. But it's not to say like, it's not a shaming mechanism or a way to ridicule, but to actually say there are choices in this quantum universal molecule dimension of mind. There are choices and there's always something that you can try. I think the issue is like depression can, in my experience, it's almost like all those pathways disappear from view. So it's really hard to, to sift through, but there's always a choice. And, and even if it's just staying with it long enough to find that choice. Um, I'm a big believer in the psyche's intelligence, self-healing intelligence, 
as well and and like you say depression of course is a natural response you know and, well, and i wonder yeah yeah let me uh, take it all over to psychosis because you raised that you know we settled in on the uh, standard of care really fast that mm -hmm. said you know so-called antipsychotic the, the more honest earlier version was major tranquilizers mm -hmm. uh, because yes i mean all they did was if you look at the rat models and animal models that were finding these chemicals back in the day and psychopharm is they wanted chemicals that would uh, uh, not diminish escape but would diminish avoidance and you can filter that in behavioral preparations with animals and most of those things can be helpful with well but part of what that means is that there's some painful things in there that people are going to have to go visit and yeah the chemicals can dampen down that you know that uh, process but should we do that is that the only way to sort of to deal with those things and do they have side effects mm -hmm. well then of course we start learning that they have side of massive things like you start messing around with dopamine to that degree mm -hmm. uh you know you get movement disorders that are lifelong and you can't get out of it now without some more medication but even those have side effects you have side effects the medication treating the side effects um well plus is there anything that could have happened inside that journey that may have included voices or seeing things that others don't see or whatever that would be healthy and helpful for that person. Mm -hmm. Well, the studies that were done, you know, the late Gordon Paul, uh, one of the heroes of evidence-based uh, psychotherapy because his dissertation was really one of the best earliest randomized trials done of the psychosocial method. Um, he moved over into this, saw the huge need, and really was working on things like halfway houses with the kind of training in terms of making it safe to, socially for people who sometimes have had hard histories and or that's part of it for them, etc. Yeah, yeah. Kind of walking people through, and I would say out of, but you know you could say out of psychosis but and with really good long-term outcomes mm. but the big randomized trials with long-term outcomes with really credible psychosocial interventions were never done mm. why because it became a standard of care and it was unethical to do them you couldn't do it well that's a rigged game how did that happen so yeah. fast can you say money <laughs> you know so yeah okay i'm not trying to shame psychiatry and and so forth there's a lot of good hearts in there that were trying to do the best they could and but now we're 50 years later and it, and the story about if it's just around the corner and we'll understand why the the genes that lead to the brain that leads mm -hmm. to the disorder that leads to no we're not that vision is gone if you can't find it through rummaging through a quarter of a million people with their full genomic analysis etc now of course the brain is involved it's all that, but it's a complex system so how are we now going to set push the reset button and start really opening ourselves up to the possibility 
that these different forms are reflections of a basic yearning there's a set of yearnings that are underneath it and there's an opportunity because we do get to see kind of what works and what doesn't and there's features this is another thing it isn't just like oh that doesn't work there's features inside that solution that are helpful mm. okay I'll, I'll give i'll give you an example um voice hearers will regularly if you stop just categorizing treating trying to diminish and trank people down to the point that do all the symptoms go away no but you get a little bit of separation enough that you don't run out into the street or do something that's too weird or you get shoved into you know a hospital because you're acting too goofy there you know but it isn't that the symptoms go away there's a they're still there but they're diminished down but through the fog of a heavy trank mm -hmm. world yeah but if you follow the natural history of voice hearers who didn't ever do that, some of the things the voices say are sometimes really helpful. And people can learn to discriminate sometimes yeah. a sense that this is helpful and a sense that this isn't. Yeah. Not everybody. You can get entangled in the voices. And command hallucinations, not a good thing, especially mm -hmm. if it's saying go do violent things, etc. Mm -hmm. I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm even okay with so-called antipsychotics under those conditions, lower dose type tapered, lots of psychosocial support. Don't reprogram the entire nervous system so mm. that you have people have to deal with movement disorders the rest of their freaking life. Mm. Like, come on. And, and by the way, you're going to live 12 years on average, 12 years shorter mm. because it's so some of these, Oh, this is the new version. Yeah. Mm. Look at, look at the mortality rates. I mean, uh, anyway, we missed an opportunity that the Zazes would open up. Zaz wasn't saying, oh, this isn't about anything. Who cares? Is yeah, that, exactly. That's not what the message. It's don't turn this into a cartoon and a category, you know, and get into, you know, the, the kind of the process of untangling this knot. R.D. Lang, part of that same generation, mm -hmm. similar message as Zaz. And let's see what's in there. The human experience of a psychotic journey is often filled with insights that you can use or, or with opportunities. Not every single one, but yeah. you know what? So we've, we've left so many opportunities on the ground back to your depression example there's really good reason to believe that depression is part of a kind of a biological reset button that you push when a major transition has to happen mm. when suddenly you know things are removed because of loss or death or you know and you go through a place that is withdrawn and you know, there's a reason we're wearing black. There's a reason why you see, I mean, look at the Merida therapy kind of things from long ago before we knew much about the brain and all. Pretty interesting, resonates with some act ideas, by the way. So much so that people sometimes think I stole it from Merida, but I didn't. I didn't even hear about Merida until way into the act journey. But it was, what would happen if you treated this process is something that might can't contain some wisdom and has some positive 
features to it yeah um so it's a little scarier but it's not going to be stigmatizing it's less stigmatizing to my way of thinking than just giving people categories yeah and clown yeah. suits to crawl into that they can never get out of that's not real mm. destigmatization yeah that's just a you know i don't know it's a, that's that kind of foreshortening people's futures in the name of being kind there's nothing kind about that well there's something kind about it but, but it's not where we should end up uh yeah. who knows how many uh you know how many uh nashes of the world were have been eliminated because of that blocking on his first name I'm, his name? I'm not sure i'm not sure but well, i do is Nashter, am, I, am I having an I've not moment? heard of him. So he oh, yeah, so yeah, he yeah. he heard voices. Yeah, and... You have a beautiful mind. What's oh, his name? Oh, Thomas Nash. Is it Thomas Nash? Thomas Nash? Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Russell Crowe's. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. yeah. This... I mean, they they romanticized it and Hollywood eyes did and yeah. turned it into visual hallucinations. It was auditory, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But that was a real person who really, really, you know, through game theory and all that, yeah. you know, changed our understanding of the world and was was and is yeah he's still alive psychotic i think did he i don't know if he died or possibly suicide i don't know if i'm mixing that up with um oh, imitation game no i'm thinking of imitation game then because i watched that recently with um alan turin who yeah. suffered with his mental health as well um what one i say one thing i want to say i'm conscious of the time um yeah. but um, where was I going to go with that depression? Uh, there's a Joseph Campbell quote that I love, which is the psychotic drowns in the same rivers the mystic swims in delight. Right. Which I, I really like that. Um, you know, it needs, it, my understanding is that this, it needs the expansion to include a, a wider dimension of being in order to better discern when is this a problem when it isn't like like you say with hearing voices how do you then discern like i i would love for that level of acceptance and care to be brought to these experiences so rather than people feeling shame they're just like what is that voice telling you is there something to learn and being guided along the way and and um that's a huge transformation that we're, we're, we're yearning for really i think in the in all experiences, which is exactly what ACT, you know, approaches in, in terms of the spectrum of the abnormal and the kind of intense um, experiences. But, uh, oh, that, that was what I was going to say, like this, this studies that I've done, studies that I've definitely not done any studies like you, but the, the research that I've done into um, creativity really starts to surface some intriguing stuff, you know, around like great philosophers, people like Aristotle, was convinced that God spoke to him and his philosophy was coming from God. We pathologize that. I think uh, Saz also says like Jesus would have been put in an institute. <laughs> you know, so so it's like we we've got to be able to pass within that wider wider paradigm to them be able to say. Well, I'm back is, to where I started earlier on, uh, uh, which is uh, there's more thoughts in your head potentially a possibility than our molecules in the universe by a multiple. Well, and so creative people, you know, dance among the, mm. the little 
fibers of their network. And they sometimes have a sense when they find things. It's very common, mathematics, mathematicians, musicians, artists, etc., who are creative way out of the edge of the, that there's a felt sense of understanding or connection or 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 possibility that occurs. Not a ding 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 kind of that gets yeah. worked out. Uh, now it can be ding 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 can be very creative too, but uh, I'm really interested by those ones that are creative to the point where you could not turn it into a paint by numbers formula. It's not like I thought this and then I thought this and then I thought this. It's not like just walking next door by following a path. It's it's something that's out on the edges where you don't know and you yeah. emotionally opened yourself up to a state of not knowing and you allowed um, fragmentary connections and metaphors and mm. felt senses and so forth to restructure when we've done modeling, uh, you know, if you start thinking where relational frame theorists does, you start thinking of thoughts as networks of relationships that are contextually controlled. So the relationships are not set. They're not like a, you know, a, a Lego block or, so, or something or like, you know, Lincoln logs or tinker toys. They're, they're shimmering, changing sets because it, it's always... But some are more apt than others in, in these uh, connections. And we actually, when we model it, and it's easy to sort of show, if you just take 100 things and you tell me how they're all related, and then I look at all the possible connections, and we now have our programs that will do that. We've published mm -hmm. them. This, this is a fun one. The single most common relation of all, among all the things in your head, are I don't know. Hmm. You know, like it'd be that kind of game you, you sometimes see people play or something like, you know, Susie is taller than Sam and Sam is faster than George. So who's faster, Susie or, or George? You know, mm -hmm. where you, the proper answer is, I don't know. I hope I did that right. I wasn't really thinking. <laughs> about but you know what I mean? Where you've got connections that are known, but then because of that, there's a known connection that consists of this idea this connection called I don't know. Mm. So of all the thoughts that you can derive in your head, the vast majority, vast majority, or I don't know, if you just follow the relational features, yeah. you will impose upon that. That's my point of view. Is the father of, look around the room, you'll impose upon that. But be careful. Because what that means is the mind so yearns to know mm -hmm. that it will give an answer that will give you knowing even if it's bullshit, to everything. Yeah. Well, talk about fake news. <laughs> yeah. Us getting into a world now where you literally may not be able to recognize, is this a, a real actor mm -hmm. or is this computer mm -hmm. generated? Mm -hmm. You know, did Joe Biden really do that to the sheep on the front lawn of the White House? <laughs> I don't think so, but <laughs> I can see it with my own eyes. Yeah, you know. Welcome to that world where yeah. the yearning for knowing, which is so powerful, even before we get language, non-human animals spend lots of their time exploring and so forth, because mm. you need to know where you are, what's, you know, where's the breath holes if you're underneath the ice, where's the escape holes if you might mm -hmm. be a predator, might show up, where are the places to eat. You need to, and our cognitive abilities allow us to do that same process now expanded across time and space. There isn't anything, anything, anything in the universe that you can't talk about.
Mm. Think about, reason about mm. nothing. Think about it, you'll see. Because mm. as soon as you think about it, it's in your yeah. network. Right? <laughs> yeah. So there are things you're not thinking about. Yeah. yeah, but you can think about it. Or at least yeah. you can't prove me that you can't because as soon as you think about it, you do. Mm-hmm. Well, my point being here, if you have such a wild horse as that, which will give us creativity and insanity, mm-hmm. that will give us love and disconnection, will give us community and isolation, will give us joy and hate. You can't manage it by out thought with the bad thoughts and with the good. You can't manage it the way a janitor would sweep up dirt on the floor. You have to manage it in a wiser way that allows you to take what's useful, leave the rest, focus on what's important, but also learn for lots and lots of things how to go out to the edges and find your solutions that mm. fit for you and what you yearn for. And I might even share with others. I mean, if in that world, if that world is coming with the robots and the, the AI programs and so forth, we will be afforded if we do it right culturally and don't just have a few billionaires controlling everybody. Yeah. You'll be afforded the opportunity to reason and write and think and play and love and you know it really really could be the future of human humanity Mm. well where would we put that i hope we put into creativity for example there's lots of cool things we can learn Mm. so yeah we're we're swimming in the same stream as wisdom suffering creativity Mm. rigidity uh but the, unless you just want to jump into the water and hope that you don't drown, jump into the water, hope that you learn to swim, hope that you're one of the lucky ones that have figured out how to do something really useful, yeah. we better figure out how to help people learn how to swim inside yeah. vast ocean of thought that's possible, to push the limits, to break down the walls, to escape from the grooved patterns that you know uh, the commercial interests are trying to produce for you whether you like it or not uh you know i'm a little fearful that between money and ai grooving has become massively easier i liked it when they were trying to put obamacare into the world you know only in the u.s you know universal health care is like going to kill you no it's not (laughs) and they were trying to figure out how to advertise it and we used our methods of implicit cognition that came out of the relational frame theory to help people in nevada figure out to do it and 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 they do they they call it something like nevada health link Mm -hmm. and we told them you know just use nevada don't say state don't say government don't for goodness sakes don't say u.s don't say federal yeah. don't say you know because we vetted all these things and we could mm-hmm. look at what happened in the cognitive networks of people who had insurance because we didn't want to offend them and who had never had insurance because we mm-hmm. wanted to empower them and we came up with words and pictures and we vetted all of that scientifically well this is little baby bounces compared to what netflix is doing to you right now Mm -hmm. or google or any of the other ones and what's coming boy it's a thousand times more able to groove you yeah or their interests 
uh, what I was doing was I thought was pro-social, but uh, it could easily be just fact, flat out economic, hopefully not evil. I guess mm -hmm. it could be for evil. I mean, you could get paranoid about that, mm -hmm. but the world that's coming will require more wisdom of us yeah. all in uh, using these processes of change to liberate our minds. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm echoing the title of my book, but not just for commercial reasons. I, I see it. I can see it as well. We've got a, yeah, a, a product placement. Yeah. It's got to be done. It's got to I've got to write my medium blogs. Yeah. Part of media. Yeah. This, uh, this is what inspired me to reach out. Yeah. I'm part of the team at Medium. I've been enjoying your work there. Um, shout out to my colleague, Andrew, as well. He's a big fan uh, of your work. Um, but yeah. yeah maybe. I, I, Maybe before we leave, I'll ask you a couple of questions about Medium because I need to understand those folks. I like Medium a lot. So, yeah, yeah, anyway. for sure. We'll, we'll do that off air, that one. Yes. <laughs> um, Steve, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Um, you know, a friend of mine, Imogen, gave me, it was a long time ago, she gave me The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. Oh, which yeah. Is when I, I was first introduced to ACT. And I think I said in the email when I, when I reached out to you, like, I feel that very fit into this conversation uh, and how dynamic and expansive it is. I really feel that ACT is such a powerful tool to, you know, in terms of synthesizing so much um, and in terms of just being able to talk to you and have this space to, to kind of go on this journey has been a, a real delight and something I feel really fortunate to, to have been able to have done. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. And thank you for this an opportunity to kind of amplify our voices mm -hmm. for the good of the world the best we can, you know, I mean, who knows how it lands, but uh, thanks for the opportunity to serve the people that you serve. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mind That Ego podcast. To stay up to date, you can join the Mind That Ego mailing list if you head to mindthatego.com slash MFM. You'll also get a copy of my book, Mindsets for Mindfulness, when you join. You can also follow Mind That Ego on Facebook and YouTube, where the podcasts are also displayed in video format, along with other inspired videos that I create. Or if Instagram is more your social media of choice, you can follow me at Ricky underscore Deriz. That's D-E-R-I-S-Z.